on a church bulletin was the following announcement. Church jumble sale. A good opportunity to get rid of anything not worth keeping, but too good to throw away. Don't forget your husband. Unfortunately, this slip-up reflects many people's opinion of marriage. That it's often not worth keeping. That it is a disposable relationship. According to Eurostat, Ireland has one of the lowest divorce rates in Europe. Around 0.7 per 1,000 people in 2018. And that's much lower than the 1.7 in the UK or the 3.2 in the, in the States. And that's really good news. But it still means that in Ireland, many couples have gone through the pain of separation and divorce. The latest census says that there were 220,000 divorced and separated people in Ireland. So what does God think about all of this? After all, as we saw last week, marriage is God's design. It is an institution that God gave to human beings. He designed it. He instituted it. And so what does he say about separation and divorce? Does he think that marriage is a disposable relationship? Well, this morning we're going to continue to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul taught on the issues of marriage and singleness and divorce. And I know that this might be a really painful issue for some of us here. So the last thing I want to do is add to anybody's pain or to to make anybody feel condemned or shamed this morning. That's not what we're here to do. But I do want us to see that marriage is a covenant. Not only because it will protect our marriages, but also because whatever our marital status It will point us to the wonder and the security of a much greater covenant relationship. The one that we all have, the moment that we put our trust in Jesus. So this morning we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 to verse 16. And Sandra's going to come up and she's going to read uh, to us. Thank you, Madam Sandra. Come on up. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, 
whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Thank you very much, Sandra. A family had just returned from a a wedding ceremony. As the dad watched, two of his two daughters played wedding. The oldest daughter took the role of the minister performing the wedding ceremony. So she said to her sister, Do you take this man for richer or for poorer? The younger daughter, who was acting out the part of the bride, she replied firmly, For richer. I think most of us as couples would choose that if we got the choice. We all want the better, the richer life. But we know that this life in this sinful and fallen world doesn't always end up like that. And so our traditional marriage vows declare a commitment to be there for each other, to be together for better and for worse, for richer and for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. And Paul believed that this was God's plan for marriage. Remember, as we saw last week, Paul was challenging the idea that had developed in this church in Corinth, that being single was more spiritual than being married. And it seems that because of that, some people in this church were actually thinking about separating, about divorcing their partners. But Paul completely rejected this idea. He said this in verse 10. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband And a husband must not divorce his wife. Divorce is not God's plan. It's not what he wants for our lives. Marriage, according to God, is a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman to each other. And Paul emphasized the importance of this command when he said, I, not the Lord. Sorry, not I, but the Lord gives that. This was not only Paul's teaching, this was Jesus' teaching. This was what Jesus himself taught during his own ministry. For that we can look at Matthew chapter 19. If you only have your Bible, you can flick over to Matthew 19. In verse 3, some Pharisees questioned Jesus about divorce there. They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? That's because the Old Testament law that was given to Moses permitted divorce. If the husband found something something indecent about his wife. But the big question was, what was that? What was something indecent? One group believed that this meant adultery. That divorce was only permitted when one partner had been unfaithful. 
the more popular group, they took a much more relaxed view on what indecent might refer to. It could be anything from being a bad cook, burning the dinner, or even if a man found somebody younger and more attractive. So what did Jesus see? Which party would he belong to? Well, instead of getting involved in arguing over what this one word meant in the law, Jesus went right back to God's original design for marriage, like we did last week in Genesis chapter 2. So he said in verse 4 of Matthew 19, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Marriage is a covenant. It's a binding promise between one man and one woman to publicly and decisively leave behind their old life and to be, to, be, to, to be united together in a loving and supportive relationship. And to become one flesh. To share together in every aspect of their lives. So the core of marriage is not romantic love. That's not the core of what marriage is about. It is not a feeling of attraction or desire or delight in someone. Now, it's great when those feelings are present. But we all know that feelings can come and go, can't they? Our emotions are incredibly changeable. One, might, one, one day, we might be ready to die for our spouse. The next day we might be ready to murder them. Hopefully not. So the core of marriage is not our emotions. The marriage covenant is not a promise to feel attracted to each other. Or to maintain the intensity of romantic affection that we feel at that very moment when we get married. That's not what the marriage covenant is. But it is a covenant promise to love each other. That's because in the Bible, love is not so much an emotion, a feeling. Rather, Love is something that we do. It is an action. It is an action motivated by the concern for another person's good. When we promise to love somebody, we are promising to always act for their good. So Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, He went on to say, So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. 
Marriage is not just about two people deciding that they love each other and want to live together. Neither is it just about a legal ceremony or document. Marriage is a miracle of God's work. It's where God brings two people together to make one. And so if marriage is God's work, then nobody has the right to destroy it. It really should be for as long as we both shall live. So these are the the walls that God has put around marriage. Not to make it a prison, as some people might feel it is, but to make it a safe fortress. A place of selfless love. And of satisfaction as husband and wife seek to please each other. And of security in knowing that they are committed to being with each other and to help each other. And this is also why marriage, as we saw last week, can point to a much greater, a much better covenant relationship the covenant relationship that we have with Jesus. This is what we're going to remember in a few minutes uh, in our time of communion together. Paul wrote later in this letter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that Jesus took the cup at the Lord's Supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. So Jesus didn't lay down his life on the cross because we were lovable or because we were so attractive. Instead, it was while we were still sinners, while we were still in rebellion against him, Jesus loved us and laid down his life for us. And so when we put our trust in Jesus, we are united with Him in a covenant relationship. Sealed by His blood. And that covenant relationship is better than, it's greater than marriage. Because it's not for as long as we both shall live or till death do us part. Instead, it is an eternal relationship. Jesus' promise to us is, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Whatever our marital status, whether we're single or married or divorced or bereaved, Jesus is the only one who can fulfill that deep longing in our hearts for, for a perfectly loving and perfectly lasting relationship. He is the only one who can fully satisfy our hearts. And this is why as believers we should honour marriage. Why if we're married today we should not divorce. 
Because God wants our marriages to be a signpost to the exclusive and faithful and satisfying and eternal relationship that we have in Christ. That is God's ultimate purpose for our marriages if we're married this morning. Now, of course, we don't live in a perfect world. We live in a world where sometimes things go wrong in marriages. Sometimes couples do separate. Sometimes, in fact, they need to separate when there is maybe violence or abuse or other destructive behaviour. So what should we do when things go wrong in a marriage? Well, Paul tells us here, he gives two options if separation between believers does occur. Verse 11, if you have a look at that, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. She must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. God's ideal is that when difficulties occur in a marriage, as they always often do, we will work to reconcile with each other through grace and forgiveness. That's because as Christians, we are called to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. We're called to express to our partners the same forgiveness and grace that we have received from Christ. But if that reconciliation is not possible, or even if it's not safe or wise to do so, then Paul says that we must remain single. For believers, remarriage is not an option. Now some people who read that or hear that being said, they say, well that consigns separate or divorced people to a life of loneliness and emptiness. But remember, Paul would not agree with that. Remember what we saw last week? How he believed in the sufficiency of Christ? How he believed that ultimately it's our relationship with Christ that fills our lives with love and, and, and value and meaning? So for the Apostle Paul, the single life, which is what he was living, was not a second class option. Was not a lesser option than being married. He believed it was just as full as a believer who is married. We'll see in a couple of weeks how he actually said it was preferable in some situations because of the opportunities to serve Christ. So when separation occurs, it should be reconciliation or singleness. But there's two, two exceptions to this in the Scriptures. Back in Matthew 19, in Jesus' teaching, Jesus went on to say in verse 9 of that chapter, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another commits adultery. 
Now, Christians, they disagree over this, so if this is a real problem for you, come and speak to me afterwards and we'll have a little chat about it. However, it seems to say that Jesus said that if a spouse committed adultery, then the other partner could divorce that spouse and remarry without sinning against God in any way. That's not to say that that divorce and remarriage is inevitable or even preferable. Through God's grace, reconciliation is still possible if there's repentance. But it is possible to divorce in that situation without doing anything against God. Paul also gives the second exception. It's similar. He says, verse 15, that if a Christian is married to an unbeliever, and if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. Now, Paul doesn't specifically mention remarriage here. But most understand that that's what, he, what is meant here. Uh, the word, but not bound... That alludes to the Jewish marry, eh, divorce documents that were given to a woman. That told the woman you are free to go and marry any other man. And then in verse 39 of this chapter, Paul used a similar phrase. He said a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. So it seems that adultery and abandonment are the only two grounds for biblical divorce and remarriage. And it seems to be something like, the reason for that is because adultery and abandonment breaks that marriage covenant in a similar way to death breaks a marriage covenant. So Paul laid that out for people, but his emphasis, his encouragement here was not to separate, it was not to divorce. Rather the emphasis in this chapter is that marriage is sacred and it should be honoured. And that's the case, even in the case of a, of a marriage between a Christian and a non-Christian. It seems that some people in this church in Corinth, they trusted in Jesus, but their partners had not. And no doubt this caused stress at home. If somebody's following Jesus and somebody is not, then it causes a, a division, a separation. And some perhaps thought even that their, their marriages stood in the way of serving Christ. Maybe even they thought their marriages offended God. Because in the Old Testament, Ezra, he told the Israelites after the exile, separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. They were told to, to break those marriages because they were, they were defiled in God's sight. So the question was in, this, in that church, should a Christian separate from their non-Christian partners? Now, Jesus hadn't dealt with this specific situation in his teaching. So that's why Paul said here, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. 
Paul was not quoting directly from Jesus' teaching here. But that doesn't mean we can kind of take it or leave it if we want. Because as an apostle, Paul was still speaking here under the authority and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this isn't any lesser important because of it. <coughs> Excuse me. So what did Paul say in that situation? Look at verse 12. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. The same call to commitment as before. As far as it depended on them, they should stay married. And Paul gave actually three reasons here in this passage for why they should stay married. The first reason, verse 14, is sanctification. It says, for the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. This doesn't mean that the unbelieving wife or husband or kids have been saved through the faith of their partner. We know, don't we, that salvation is through personal faith in Christ and nobody can make that decision for us. But this does mean that the believing wife or husband has a sanctifying influence on that marriage. And so their marriage is not unholy. It is not unlawful. It's not less than the marriage between believers. It is just as precious, just as holy in God's sight. God doesn't see these believers as being contaminated by their unbelieving partners. In fact, it's the opposite. Their partners have been in some way set apart for God's blessing. These unbelievers have been brought into contact with God's grace through their believing partners. And it says that's the same with the kids. They've also been blessed through the influence of a godly parent. They have the opportunity to hear about the Lord, to learn God's Word and to experience God's love. So that marriage is not less than the marriage between two believers. Second reason to stay is that God has called us to live in peace. Verse 15. We're called to, to live in a way that we, they were in harmony with others, including our partners. Paul says in Romans 12 and 18, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. It's not always possible, Paul says. It's not always dependent on us. But when it is, live at peace. And then thirdly, they should stay married because verse 16, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? 
Folks, this is not an encouragement for Christians to marry an unbeliever in the hope that they will turn to Christ later on. Paul's very clear about that in verse 39, where it says about a widow, how she can marry anybody as long as he's a believer. And also in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. But this is an encouragement for those who come to Christ that God can work through their marriage to influence their partner. Even bringing them to salvation in Christ through faith in Him. And we really praise God that we have seen this in this church, haven't we? Where one person has come to Christ and then a little while later their, their, their husband or their wife has come to Christ as well. And we rejoice at that. But of course Paul doesn't give us any promises or guarantees of that in this passage. He says it's possible, but it's not guaranteed. So this isn't for us to say, well, this is going to happen, but it is for us to say, this is a call for us, those of us who are partners, who have not yet believed, to live faithfully for Christ in that marriage. And to, to wait patiently and to pray constantly for our partners. That God will open up their hearts and bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And we as a church, we want to stand with you in that prayer and pray for you and, in the, and for your marriage that God will use you to point your loved one to Christ. And so this passage is again pointing us to Christ and encouraging us to point people to Christ whatever our marital status is. So let me just finish by summarizing that. So if we are married, then we need to be faithful to the covenant of marriage that we have entered into with our spouses. And so demonstrate and point people to the faithfulness of Jesus. The one who has brought us into a covenant relationship with Him through His blood when we trusted in Him. Then if we are single this morning, we can thank God for the faithful marriages which do illustrate to us the faithfulness of Jesus in our covenant relationship with Him. And we can pray that God will protect those marriages from the attack of the evil one. For those of us who are separated here this morning, we need to realize that in God's sight, our covenant of marriage is still valid. So we need to be faithful to our husbands and wives, even when we're separated from them. By either remaining single or expressing the grace of Christ to them by working towards reconciliation. For those who have gone through the pain of divorce, then you can rejoice this morning that if you recognize that you sinned 
in the breakup of your marriage, then you have been fully forgiven in Christ. And if you were sinned against by the one who made a promise to stand with you right throughout your whole life, then you can come to the one whose love is unfailing, is unending, and is unconditional, and who promises to you, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, and will keep that promise. And then finally, for those who have been bereaved, then you can rejoice that although death ends our marriages, our covenant relationship with Christ will never end. And so we can say with Paul, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord.